Hello, I'm Tom Beale, Divisional Director at St James's Place, and today I'll be hosting a roundtable discussion with Chris Ralph, Peter Dunscombe and Nathan Galber, where we'll be discussing a number of changes to our funds and fund manager lineup effective on the 10th of October. So starting with the Worldwide Income Fund, Chris, the mandate we're launching has flexibility to invest globally. Can I ask you why we're thinking about launching a global fund? I think first and foremost, Tom, that, that, that equity income is really important for investors at this point in time, that we're seeing great demand for um, income to replace uh, the, the lack of income that, that, that investors are getting from the money that they're holding on deposit. Although suffice to say that holding money on deposit is very different from investing in risk markets. Uh, and, and we've seen a lot of our clients asking us uh, for a greater number of um, opportunities in that part of the marketplace. I think added to that, that in the global equity income sphere, uh, there are now lots more companies around the world that are offering uh, reasonable, reasonably attractive yields um, in the first instance, but also dividends that are growing, and therefore that makes them um, attractive investment opportunities. So all in all, we thought it was a good time to be launching that type of product. And, and Nathan, can I ask you, given we have a number of equity income funds already today, how you think about seeking different opportunities in the market? Um, it's always the first and foremost challenge relates to finding outstanding talent in the asset management space, and that is not different when it comes to income equity strategies. So um, we were trying to find the best investors we could for the given mandate and at the same time make sure that there's not too much of an overlap between the existing strategies and the new ones that we're bringing forward. And, and given the wealth of talent here in the UK in equity income, what, what took you to Cape Town to find this new manager? Um, in essence, we looked globally to find talent and we just felt that everything else taken together, the proposition out of Cape Town was very compelling uh, for SJP. Thank you. Um, Peter, you've met Clyde Russo through the Investment Committee. Could I ask what your um, opinions of Clyde were and how you felt he would be a good addition to the platform? Oh, I think he, he came across as a, a very talented investor um, with a, a very sound investment philosophy and one, one which he has kept to for quite a long period of time. Um, I think it was also important that he had a, a, a strong bench of um, co-managers and analysts around him um, because they have to do quite a lot of the legwork in terms of research and analysis. Um, I think they also probably benefit actually from being under the umbrella of Investec, which is a global firm, um, which probably has the opportunity of opening doors for them around the world. So it was just a, a I think it was, com the combination was really quite a compelling pr proposition. So moving on to the Global Smaller Companies Fund, um, Nathan, perhaps I could start with you and um, ask what led you to um, identifying Kevin Beck of Paradise Investment Management as a, as a fund manager. When the mandate came up for discussion, we <coughs> um, conducted a worldwide search for small cap managers with a global orientation and in the process looked at in excess of 150 individual firms. Um, it just so happened that Kevin Beck was known to us from his previous uh, work with, uh, with Artisan 
and um, he filled a number of criteria that we were looking for, and he had the potential capacity to take on a mandate of the SGP nature. So um, not only do we think he is an exceptional investor in the small cap space, but also somebody who is philosophically very aligned with what SGP tries to achieve in the small cap universe. And um, could I ask, is this an exclusive arrangement for clients of St. James's Place? Uh, to the best of our knowledge, Kevin Beck is not managing any assets for other UK investors. And, and Chris, could I perhaps ask you, um, is, is exclusivity a prerequisite for um, identifying new fund managers? It's not a prerequisite, but it's a benefit if we can realise it. We need to scan the global universe of managers, Tom, and, uh, and see where the best opportunity lies. And if in finding those opportunities we have the ability to create uh, an exclusive relationship for our clients, then we think that with all the research that we undertake with, with Stanford's very considerable assistance and, and the work of the investment committee, that we want to utilise that research for the clients of St James's Place and, and, and not for, for other clients in the, in the UK wealth management market. Um, we've got 17 exclusive relationships uh, around the world and we'll add more through this phase of changes and I think that's a, a, an important differentiating characteristic of our proposition. Um, and this fund was previously labelled high octane. Um, could you perhaps describe the reasons for changing this to a global smaller companies fund? It's purely and simply because the way in which Kevin Beck runs money um, uh, has different aims and has a different modus operandi to uh, the high octane fund. Uh, so we felt that the, the change of name was uh, more appropriate, the change of investment objective, uh, objective was, was more appropriate and aligns with how he invests. Thank you. Um, Peter, could I ask you um, how you and other members of the investment committee think about a smaller cap mandate and, and the risks associated with that? Well, there are greater risks undoubtedly attached to smaller cap investing, but over the long term there should be a commensurate higher return available. Um, that does, of course, require you to monitor the risk side of um, the process, um, and uh, undoubtedly a lot of work has been done to ensure that they have the right risk controls in place. But I think it's also quite important that it's sort of embedded in the culture of the investment manager himself, so that he's not just relying on, on the, the rigid risk controls, but it's sort of almost built into his DNA. Um, and of course, I think it's important to stress that Stanford's will be going, uh, analyzing going forward um, the risks taken, and, and if they were to move away a lot from where we expected them to be, then we would obviously be following up to understand why that, ha that had happened. So Nathan, given the perceived higher risks of global smaller company mandates, how does that affect the monitoring which Stanford's undertake? Um, we monitor all managers on a forensic basis. Um, this one um, will not be very different. However, the emphasis of the monitoring will take into account the higher risk element embedded in the smaller cap stocks uh, that are owned in the portfolio. So it is very, very stock specific in an attempt to make sure that the manager adheres to the investment discipline that he espoused in risk management terms. So moving on to the Global Equity Fund, um, which is what we describe as a blended fund where one or more managers are combined together. In this instance, there are four different managers. Um, Peter, could I ask your perspective on these blended funds um, and how you feel about how this benefits clients, given some people might say 
um, there's less manager accountability and transparency. I feel blended funds have a significant part to play actually going forward. I'm, we have them already, but I think it will grow. Um, there are an enormous numbers, a number of talented investment managers out there that we, for whatever reason, are not able to invest in. It could be that they don't have the capacity. It could be that they run very concentrated portfolios and therefore are, are perceived as very risky. Um, and these are, you, we would not be willing to put on the platform by themselves. But if we put them together, then we can reduce the volatility, we can smooth out the returns, um, and gain access to this pool of very, very talented uh, managers that would otherwise we, we would not be able to. Um, Chris, J.O. Hambro, the manager who we are appointing to this mandate, um, is a manager that we know well already. Um, is there a benefit to St. James's Place from that? I think there is a bit of a benefit that, that once we get to know a fund management company, um, we know the type of people they, they, they hire, uh, the type of people they want working within their, uh, within their, their, their stable of fund managers. Uh, and, and I think in this particular instance, we have a, a manager who was actually trained by one of uh, the other managers on our platform, John Wood. And, and again, that's very helpful because we've got an investment process that's something we're already quite familiar with. Thanks, Chris. And, um, and Nathan, Ben Leyland, the individual who, who you've identified, could you, uh, could you just describe what, what stood out um, about him? As Chris, Chris suggested, we've known Ben Leyland for something like five or six years as he worked with John Wood. Um, and we followed him, um, having spun out from the UK equity group into the global group. Um, the investment process he applies is very consistent with the way in which John Wood thinks about investing. It's fundamentally orientated, a concentrated portfolio of 20 to 25 stocks, very cash flow driven and with a very high sense of preservation of capital. So on to the Asia-Pacific Fund, and um, Nathan, can I ask, um, in your perspective, how do you think restricting um, the Japanese equities element of this mandate impacts the manager? Uh, we, we don't think um, that in itself provides a major constraint to the manager's ability to apply their skills in Asia. Um, the mandate has been widened out to include Australia as well, and don't forget the manager does have the ability to select up to 20% of the assets in Japanese securities. So we don't think that in and of itself it provides any constraint. And Chris, is it usual to, um, for the investment committee to stipulate such constraints on managers? We think the key thing is, is identifying managers for their skills and then uh, structuring the mandate so that we take advantage of those skills. One thing that comes across in the uh, Stanford's research and then their ongoing monitoring is a very clear identification of where managers are adding value um, and therefore that allows us to, to work with the manager to identify the key parts of their capabilities that um, we can access and we want to be accessing for our clients. And Peter, how, from your perspective, how does the investment committee think about um, the analysis which Stanford's provides and then ultimately then decides where to restrict or not managers in certain mandates? Well, I think, I th I think it's, um, it, 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 it's a group decision is probably the way I'd approach it, which is that it's, it's an, uh, an analysis that 
Stanford will come up with a, with a suggestion. It's after discussion with the manager, and then it's debated at the investment committee. And so I don't think it's anybody banging the table and saying, well, we know which way markets are going. Um, you have to work with the manager to try and, as Chris said, get the best out of the manager. Um, I think also uh, I would emphasize that, of course, going forward, there are ongoing discussions with the manager all the time. And if the manager suddenly felt that um, one country was particularly attractive, they could either go up to the maximum available, in this case 20% in Japan, but they can always come back to us and say, look, we, we think you should consider increasing it further. So it's, it's a matter of apply, applying all our minds to it um, and trying to come out with a sensible solution to get the best out of the manager. And um, could I ask about the, um, how you and the investment committee think about the um, tenure of manage, outgoing managers? And in this instance, we're replacing a manager who had been with St James's Place for a very long time. I think that's a really key point. The, the most important thing is that there shouldn't be sacred cows on our investment platform. Uh, we need to retain managers because we still think they can do a great job for, for our clients going forward. Uh, and therefore, that's what the investment committee is focused on. That's what uh, Stanford's are focused on in terms of the, the ongoing monitoring. We don't take these decisions lightly. These are big decisions. Chris, the Emerging Market Fund, which we are um, changing the fund manager but also reopening the fund, that leaves St James's Place now with two choices in emerging markets. How would you suggest clients think about the choice between those two different funds? I think it's a great place to be and to have choice. Um, and actually, we've got two managers who are investing in a different way, have different portfolios. So it gives uh, clients the opportunity to consider uh, different ways of approaching the challenge to investing in emerging markets. I, I, I think also there's a diversification opportunity here because maybe it would be better to be considering both funds um, within an investment portfolio because of their differentiating characteristics uh, and, and the way in which um, uh, as a package they may reduce the overall volatility, the overall riskiness of being associated with emerging markets uh, uh, and, uh, and it will be commensurate with, with a client's attitude to risk. And I'd just like to pick up on that diversification point where you describe the fund as being suitable for higher risk um, investors, but many of our St James's Place clients are indeed medium risk. How would you think about an emerging market strategy if you were a medium risk client? I think one can consider um, accessing an emerging markets um, strategy within a medium risk overall portfolio but clearly uh, one shouldn't be putting a substantial proportion of one's investments into a high risk uh, strategy uh, even a number of high risk strategies but reflecting on the overall construction of the portfolio so it's a it's a balance between low risk investments medium risk investments and maybe if they're suitable within the overall portfolio construction uh, a high risk investment um, Glenn Finnegan is, uh, is based in Edinburgh. Um, it doesn't seem an obvious place for an emerging market fund manager to be located. I think it's, <coughs> it's a very good point, Tom. Um, we, we live by the mantra that we will go anywhere uh, to find a superior manager and SGP has been very supportive in that effort and when you look at SGP's platform you will see managers located all the way from um, Australia through the, through the Far East into Europe. Um, 
the identification of an Edinburgh-based manager is very consistent with the notion to go anywhere. And it just so happens that Glenn Finnegan, who is a very seasoned investor in emerging markets, happens to be located in Edinburgh, although he travels the world in search for um, attractive investments in emerging markets. And, and Peter, from your perspective, you've obviously seen a great deal of number of managers over the years. Um, is, there a, is there an obvious difference between managers who are located in or out of the region which they invest in? I think there used to be. I think um, 30 or 40 years ago, you had to have your feet on the ground in the area you were investing in. But you know, the modern um, uh, flow of information, um, the 24-hour world we live in, I think the need is much less um, than, it, than it was. And I think it, it's perfect. You can be based anywhere in the world if you want to. Um, I think the other thing that, I mean, communication um, in terms of transportation is now um, much, much easier. Even from Edinburgh, you can fly down to London and get anywhere in the world pretty quickly. So, um, no, I don't, I don't think in this day and age you would really look at the location of a global or emerging market manager. And, and could you argue there's a benefit from being outside of the region? I think you can. Um, and I, I, I think that there, it's a, you often get a slightly different type of manager. Um, there are those who thrive on the, the, the buzz of rumour and half of which are probably wrong. Um, but the sorts of managers that we were investing in who are trying to determine long-term value of companies, I think do benefit from being somewhat detached from those very close market environments. And moving on to the International Corporate Bond Fund, this is another blended structure we're introducing with two fund managers um, which we're appointing. Um, could I ask um, your view on what the benefit of that is for this type of fund? Well, I think um, up until now we've had a single manager obviously managing both the US and European portfolios. Um, and due to the departure of, of the lead manager in, in Europe, we decided we needed to move. Um, and I think it, it's fair to say that w it would have been convenient if we could have found a single manager to replace um, the outgoing manager. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And I, there is an argument to say that actually to look for a, a really best-in-class manager in both of the markets could actually provide a better outturn at the end of the day. Um, uh, and, and probably you're getting a little bit diversification of risk because the two investment approaches will probably be different. Whereas if it's under the same umbrella, they're more likely to be more similar. Nathan, you talked earlier about the, the, the difference of styles and combining those. Clearly here we have a slight difference because the managers are operating in different regions. Is, is style still a consideration in this blend? Uh, to a degree it is, uh, Tom. Uh, investment analysis and fixed income area are usually quite similar, albeit uh, there are subtle differences. And when we look at the way in which either of those two new managers approach the analytical aspect of fixed income investing, there are some subtle differences. The fact that they are geographically separate means that the overlap of credits within the portfolios is very limited. And therefore, at the end of the day, the investors will, will um, essentially gain access to a very diversified portfolio, which in the credit space, we believe is a very prudent way of approaching the investment challenge. And, and Chris, um, we talked a bit earlier about equity income. And again, this is clearly another interesting income strategy. How do you think clients should think about 
this fund alongside our other equity income and other bond funds that we have. The difference obviously between a, an equity income fund and a fixed income fund is in the nature of the, the description of the asset class. One is dealing with fixed coupons rather than dividends uh, and we know and have experienced situations where companies do cut their dividends. So, uh, whilst within a, an equity income fund there may be uh, an opportunity for dividend growth, um, there is also a, a higher preponderance of, of, of dividend cuts that, that managers in that sectors, in those sectors, have got to be aware of. Within fixed income, one needs to think about credit risk and the possibility of default, i.e. not paying a coupon. And, and, and actually, even in times of market dislocation, that's a relatively rare event. Um, so the, the managers that we work with are, very, are, are probably obsessive, I think is the adjective I'd use, um, thinking about uh, the quality of the, the companies that they're investing in and, and whether or not they're likely to be able to, to make their interest payments and they don't want to be owning um, bonds in companies where uh, there is any risk of, uh, of default. And, and so going back to the point we were saying earlier about diversification, it, it sounds like these are very different income streams whether you're in equities or bonds. Would you suggest a combination of both is, is appropriate for clients? Absolutely, it comes back to that uh, issue of portfolio construction, how you use the building blocks with an overall portfolio, assessing the disc, different return options, uh, the different risk parameters that you're engaging in and, and the way in which funds work well together. Um, Peter, the Worldwide Opportunities Fund um, is another blended fund. Um, we're appointing Jim Hamill, who is a manager known to us and manages money for, for St James's Place clients elsewhere. Um, can you talk through the, de the decision process of appointing a manager which is already on the platform elsewhere? Well, I think it is, it is undoubtedly a benefit. Um, if we have a new relationship, Stanford Associates will have done an enormous amount of analysis of historic portfolios, trading, the performance of those portfolios, attended meetings as to, uh, to try and understand the, um, the, the way, the, the whole investment approach. Um, but until you've had money with somebody for a few months, maybe six months, nine months, 12 months, you never really understand how it works. So. For me, whilst the work that Stanford's do reduce enormously the risks um, in taking on a new manager, if you're taking on someone that you've already worked with and you understand and um, understand their philosophy, um, I just think that it gives you a higher degree of confidence. It doesn't mean it's going to be right, but it gives you a higher degree of confidence. And, and Nathan, um, again, it's a package of three different managers coming together here. How do Stanford's look at those different managers to identify they are genuinely um, compatible? Well, um, the number of levels of analysis that we undertake in terms of the investment strategy and process that the individual managers follow, in this particular case, it's quite easy to discern the difference between Select and Burgundy and the Jim Hamill approach, which has a very strong bias towards growth type companies, whilst the other two managers have much more of a value tilt. Uh, what we also do is we combine and compare the underlying portfolios, um, trying to assess what kind of overlap in terms of individual holdings, but also in terms of their fundamentals, we're able to detect 
it so happens that the um, new portfolio by Jim Hamler has very little, I think, two or three stocks that overlap with the existing managers. So we can clearly see that they're fishing in a different pond and therefore do provide considerable diversification, for better or worse, relative to the two incumbent managers. Thanks, Nathan. And um, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time today. That brings, um, brings us to a close. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Any views and opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals and are subject to change. Where individual securities are mentioned, they do not necessarily represent a specific portfolio holding and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase or sell. Please be aware that past performance is not indicative of future performance. The value of an investment may fall as well as rise and you may get back less than you invested. Returns on equities cannot be guaranteed. Equities do not provide the security of capital characteristic of a deposit with a bank or building society.